0: Then it says, the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God moving about in the orchard in the breezy time of the day, and they hid from Yahweh God among the trees of the orchard. But God called to them, where have you been? What have you done? Now God is not expressing his ignorance. Sometimes language is descriptive, and sometimes it's prescriptive. Prescriptive is when you're making a declaration about something. I don't know the answer to the question. That's prescriptive. I'm telling you, I'm prescribing to you my lack of knowledge. But sometimes it's descriptive. As in like, if you've been really late out at night and you violated curfew, and you were doing some things that you shouldn't have done, and you come home late at night, and there's your dad sitting in the middle of the night in the chair facing the front door, and you walk and he turns on the light, scares the crap out of you. And the first thing he says is, where have you been? Now, lo and behold, you didn't know that some neighbor saw what you were doing and called him and told him everything, and he already knows. He's not proclaiming his ignorance to you. He's not prescribing I don't know. He's des- it's descriptive. And what he's asking is, do you love me enough to tell me the truth? I already know. Now, yes, if all I had was this verse, then I can't say that about God, that he doesn't really know. But in the context of the Bible, it is so obvious he knows. So, therefore, this becomes descriptive. And what he's saying is relationship, relationship, relationship. Come to me. Do you respect me and love me enough to just tell me the truth? And of course, they don't, because now they're sinners. And love is not even in the picture anymore. And so he calls them, Where have you been? The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard and I was afraid. Why would he be afraid? Because he's bought into a bad theology of who God is. So I hid. And Yahweh said, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, Yes. He immediately blames, which is exactly what we do. It's not my fault. You don't understand the neighborhood I grew up in. Or the family that I had. Or the dad that I had. Or the, the lack of education that I had. It's not my fault. But I love his, his is, he has incredible audacity here. Because he doesn't just blame the woman, he blames God. It's the woman that you put in the garden. If it hadn't been for you, my life would be okay. Which once again, God is wrong and what he's done. So then he goes to, now notice that God is confronting them in reverse order. Serpent, Eve, Adam. Now they're getting confronted as Adam, Eve, and serpent. And so he goes to the woman. Of course, she blames the serpent. God doesn't even bother to question the serpent. Which maybe he knows he's not going to get the truth out of them because he already knows the serpent is corrupted. Now, once again, here's the other problem with this. We talked about this last week. It's not just that they were supposed to resist the serpent. That's just the small part of it. Remember, as the image of God called to expand and redeem the world, they weren't just meant to resist the serpent. They were meant to redeem the serpent. Or they were meant to drive the serpent out of the garden. What makes their sin so horrible is not that just first, they say that what God wants And God's relationship is not important to me. But then they turn around and have such lack of love for the serpent to try to save him. And such lack of love for God's perfect garden to save it. And they bring chaos into everything else. Because nobody sins in a vacuum. Our decisions always ripple into everybody else's life. But we don't ever think about that in the moment. All we can think about is ourselves and what we want. And so in that moment, C.S. Lewis makes the great point, sin is not always an intentional rebellion against God sometimes. Sometimes sin is just the absence of God, that you're so self-focused that you're not thinking about him or other people or yourself anymore. Or yourself is in what will it do to you. All you can think about is what you want. Sin becomes tunnel vision. Is the reason why why God went to Adam because he instructed Adam in the first place? Yes. And there is a sense that Adam does have headship. And I can't fully explain what that headship looks like pre-fall because we weren't there. I can tell you what the headship looks like post-fall because it's Ephesians 4 and Peter and all that kind of stuff. But there is some kind of a headship that is way better than how we abuse it as males in our culture today in the world. But yes, there is a headship there. And we know that's headship because, remember, Adam is the one that gets blamed for the fall all throughout the Bible, even though he's not the one who did it first. And there's a sense of, of that he's being held accountable for his passivity too during all of this. So, yes, good question. God comes to them, and now he brings the judgments. Now it gets very poetic here. And the poetic nature of the judgments puts the emphasis on the judgments. Because this is where we're going to begin to relate. For the first time ever, we can probably truly begin to relate. It's hard to relate to a garden where everything's good. It's hard to relate to a God that walks in the garden with you. It's hard to relate to being completely naked and vulnerable and not feeling any shame. But it's easy to relate to those temptations, the questionings. And now it's going to really be easy to relate to the relational brokenness. Now remember, once again, the primary thing that has been violated is the relationship with God. So each one of these judgments has to do with relationships. And there's only three relationships that you'll ever have in your life, and that's with God, each other, and creation. And so the relationship with God is already broken, and he'll end all this with the ultimate broken relationship by kicking them out of the garden. But what he's going to focus on now is their broken relationship with each other and with creation. And that's where the judgments come. And don't think of these judgments as God saying, now I'm going to make this happen to you. What God judgments is more the idea this is what's going to naturally happen. Because judgment has the idea of God kind of withholding his protection and guidance. He says, fine, do you want to do this? You want to kick me out of your life? I'm stepping back. Now, of course, we're told in the scriptures that whenever we turn back to him, he's always there. And despite a rebellion, he's still involved in a life called general revelation and grace and but there is a certain extent where he does back off because we want that and so the first judgment he does he says Yahweh God verse 14 said to the serpent because you've done this cursed are you above all the wild beasts and all the living creatures of the field on your belly you will crawl and the dust you will eat and the days of your life now the only thing that gets cursed is the ground and the serpent Adam and Eve don't get cursed they get judged but they don't get curse and curse judgment has the idea of consequences wrath has the idea of being totally condemned and curse has the idea of completely withdrawing God's protection and guidance from you so the first consequence serpent has done this he will crawl now notice again he's called a wild beast again reemphasizing that this is just an animal he's going to crawl on his belly He's going to eat the dirt. Does that mean that serpents originally had legs and now they don't? I have no idea. Okay? It might explain why some reptiles have legs and some reptiles don't have legs. It could be teleology, which is the big word for to explain why things are the way that they are. But it also could just be that the judgment is he's going to be close to the dirt, the dust, which is a symbol of not life. The dust is not life. The dust that grows plants is life. The tongue eating the dirt. We know serpents don't really eat dirt, but it looks like they're eating dirt. And there's actually poetic passages where man's mouths will be filled with dirt and dust. It's a form of saying judgment. Because from the dust you've come to the dust you will return. And so now we're going to begin to get the new language introduced of Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. The earth. And now where the earth was always seen as a source of blessing, now because of sin, the earth can also be seen as a place of death. And so what it really means is the serpent is going to be forever connected to death, and his mouth is going to be filled with death. Now, is God judging Satan himself? No. He's judging and condemning the serpent. And the serpent became the representative of creation. And now creation is being condemned and judged. Then he says, And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head and he you will attack her offspring's heel. Now, I really hate to burst your bubble here, but this is not the first gospel presentation. This has often been called a proto-evangelion which means the first gospel. It is not. This is not about Christ on the cross destroying the devil. Okay? And first of all, I want to say this. The first time that that view ever came into existence was the early church fathers during the medieval period. And they allegorized everything. I mean, they were like, well, the clothes of... They actually would say this. The clothes that God gave them the Adam and Eve is Christ. And he clothed them. and And the... The staff that they carried was the Holy Spirit, and, and the horse that they rode on was grace and peace. Every little thing in the Bible became something about Christ, and everybody rejects that today, including you. You may not know the theological terms and all that kind of stuff, but none of us read the Bible thinking that every single chair and table and coin means something specific or symbolic, and they did that. So the first time that this idea of this becoming about Christ was not until the medieval period. So here's a couple things that we need to keep in mind as we look at this. One, the word here is offspring. I will put hostility between your offspring and her offspring. Offspring's plural. And even if it's singular, it's a descendant. So here's a big problem. If this is the devil, then who are the devil's children? Is he giving birth to little devils? No. And if this is Jesus, what about all the other offsprings before Jesus? Why did we narrow it down to just one offspring out of the millions and billions that came from Eve? So the fact that he says, your offspring against her offspring, that's a collective plural. Meaning all of your offspring are going to be constantly against the serpent's, all of its offsprings, and all of its offsprings are going to be constantly against all of your offsprings. That really makes it difficult when you try to make it Satan and Jesus. Uno, uno. Does that make sense? So the fact that he's talking about plurality here cannot be about Christ. Second, the word here is Crush. Now, some of your translations use crush and then bruise, and it implies that the serpent strike is not as fatal as the man's strike. The problem is, in the Hebrew, it's the exact same word. You'll crush his head, he'll crush your heel. Now, I know you think, wow, but having a blow on your heel is not as bad as your head. Yeah, it is when it's a viper. In the middle of the wilderness, pre-science and technology and medicine and penicillin and all that kind of stuff, when a serpent bites you, you die. And even today, if you go over to the Middle East and you're bitten, you die. Right? So, yes, it's, and it's pretty like within minutes, some of those serpents, and you have to realize that there are an entire texts of the ancient world where people keep talking about how serpents are killing people and this and they're trying to they're constantly striking serpents and check your boots and the staff. One of the main reasons for a staff was to take care of serpents. I mean, we're not used to that because we've asphalt everything. But the reality is for most of the world and most of history, serpents are very deadly. And that word serpent is also used synonymously throughout the Bible to also include scorpions and other kind of venomous things. And if you go over to the Middle East, the black scorpion, oh my goodness. (laughs) Check your boots in the morning. So the reality is this is a death blow to both of them. It just has more to do with it's easier for him to strike the heel. Serpents just don't fly up in the air like a bouncing Betty and grab you. 3 there's no sense of victory there's no hint of a victory here i don't know where we've gotten the idea that like there's a victory here that this some people say oh yeah there is a constant conflict and there are lots of offsprings but christ becomes the offspring that brings the final victory where do you get final victory there's no hint what you get the hint of is a constant conflict with no end right There's no hint of this coming to an end right here. No hint of it coming to an end. And so that presents a problem. Also, it is clear that this serpent is called an animal. It's clear that it's called an animal. The wild beast is going to be judged. It also makes it very clear that the human is going to strike first. If this is about Christ and Satan, who strikes first? Satan strikes Christ on the cross, and Christ strikes back in his resurrection. But here, the man is striking first, which doesn't fit the whole cross scenario. So there's a problem with that. The other thing is, this is judgment. What happens in the verse before that? Judgment. What happens in the verse after that? Judgment, 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 judgment. How often in the Bible do you read God judging you, and in the middle of it he tells you I love you, and there's a hope, and then he goes back to judging you? Everywhere in the Bible, God judges, then he brings hope. He doesn't mix hope within the judgment. That's called miscommunication, and really messing your kids up if you do that. Okay, judgment, then hope. There's no sense of this is about hope. What you have is brokenness, 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 brokenness. So it doesn't fit the context. And the other thing is that the only place that we ever get... Here's the other thing. If this is about Christ, why does nobody in the Second Testament grab this? Why does nobody quote this passage and say, Jesus, nobody does. Now you're saying, well, Romans 1620. Yeah, but pay attention. Paul's actually greeting them and saying, goodbye, I love you. So there's no theology. He's not developing theology. He's just saying, say hi to this guy, hi to this guy, I love you, may Christ's peace be with you. And all by the way, Christ will crush the serpent, or Satan, under your foot. If this is about Christ, then why isn't he mixing it in the heart of Romans with all the theology? And why does he say Satan and not the serpent? And why does he say crush it under your foot and not Satan or Jesus' foot? Because we know we can't crush the serpent without Jesus doing it first. But he doesn't mention that. So there's nothing in the Second Testament even hints towards the gospel. Now, is it true that Christ continued this conflict and brought a more devastating blow than any human ever has to Satan? Yes. But is that what this is talking about? No. And remember, who's the original audience? Adam and Eve. And are they listening to this thinking, yay, Jesus. No. Remember, God communicates to you, not to people thousands of years in the future. He hasn't come to you and condemn you for your sins. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. Don't worry. it. In 4000 BC, your children will get it. That's not effective. And then who's the secondary audience? The people who just came out of Egypt. And are they thinking Jesus? No. So we need to be careful about reading the first, second testament back in the first. Now I'm not changing your theology about Jesus being the ultimate defeater of Satan on the cross. All I'm saying is, great theological principle, wrong passage. Does that make sense? And you might think, well, what's the big deal? Because it's still true. Yeah. But if you can't handle this correctly, then you're going to start handling other passages incorrectly. And then we start making things up that may not be theologically accurate. Does that make sense? We have to ask the question, what does the text say? And I know that this bucks against our tradition big time. But tradition can be very good. But tradition can be very bad. And if you want to see examples of bad tradition ruining your relationship with God, go to the Gospels. Because that's what God was bucking the entire time. Good intentions somewhat decent theology, wrong passages that eventually led to really bad theology. And so this is judgment. The idea is this. Your relationship with creation is now broken. You're going to kill animals. You're going to rape the woods and the trees and pollute your grounds. You're going to cut off the horns of animals and let them die just to make money. And they're going to attack you back And you're going to asphalt their neighborhoods off. You're going to be in constant conflict with nature. And you're going to attack it first. And it's going to attack back. Welcome to your relationship with creation. That's the point.